Hello, I'm Daniel. This is my podcast, Sharpening the Mind. I am a meditation teacher and also a labor activist in Kansas City, Missouri. I teach classes in meditation and Buddhism at the Rime Buddhist Center, as well as a few other places. Thank you for listening and have a great day. Hello, today we're going to talk about how to use the mind to free the mind. How to use the mind to free the mind. And this may be kind of a heavy talk. I'm going to pull from uh, The Power of Mind by Kentrell Lodrote and read some quotes for that and talk about what's in that book. We are going to talk about bodhicitta. And I'll, I'll explain what that is, but we're going to talk about ultimate bodhicitta, which sounds really heavy and challenging, and we'll, we'll see if we think it is. We'll see if we think it is. So, I'm going to start with a quote from Kendra Lodrote from the book. He says, Freedom doesn't come from external circumstances. It comes from within. Practice is the process of our mind freeing itself through great compassion and profound. To succeed, we must transcend theoretical concepts and make these teachings our direct experience. So I think that's really true. So we could learn a lot about meditation practice and we can learn a lot about Buddhism and mind training and all these wonderful things. But ultimately, <clears throat> ultimately what we're trying to do is make them part of our direct experience. So I don't want to learn about compassion and wisdom, or rather I do, but I don't want to simply learn about compassion and wisdom. I want to also learn how to manifest these in my life. The mind training teachings are practices to help us cultivate bodhicitta, which is the awakened mind. It's that, that state of mind that leads us to freedom from suffering. It's that state of mind that stops saying, what about mine? Why is this happening to me all the time? And instead just sees reality as it is and just does our best where we do our best to make the best choices. So ultimate bodhicitta represents the true nature of reality. And we're going to talk about relative bodhicitta too. And this is like really philosophical. And I hope that we can keep it together for this. So the mind training teachings, um, the seven key points of mind training by Atisha emphasize training in relative bodhicitta and include explanations of ultimate bodhicitta. But the point is we got to get through relative bodhicitta in order to touch upon ultimate bodhicitta. Relative bodhicitta is defined as an attitude of great compassion for sentient beings. Sentient just means thinking beings just like you and me, okay? So relative bodhicitta is an attitude of great compassion. And ultimate bodhicitta is the wisdom that realizes the true nature of reality. Wow, right? So if we engage our, our true self that's within us, then that is ultimate bodhicitta. Relative bodhicitta is where we are just trying to make the world a better place. Make the world a better place. And these are both important, right? And mind training teachings prepare us for both. 
both cultivating that relative bodhicitta and that ultimate bodhicitta. So even if our goal isn't ultimate bodhicitta, we could still get a lot out of this path because training in great compassion leads us to well-being and creates harmony between us and the world around us. So Kentrell Lodrote, he says, and I quote, <clears throat> Because the ultimate nature is so profound, we first need to refine and tame our mind in order to realize it. This is achieved by giving rise to relative bodhicitta. Once we have trained thoroughly in the relative bodhicitta practices of loving kindness and compassion, we will see that to benefit others in the ultimate sense, we must realize the true nature of all things. This is the aim of mind training, ultimate bodhicitta. As the coarse layers of our obscurations are refined away, realization will gradually awaken within us. So what are we talking about? We're talking about real spiritual enlightenment, real spiritual enlightenment. But like the thought of all our obscurations going away, all our, you know, all our afflictions, all our suffering, and just manifesting this, this great mind of awakening that sees things clearly and can know the best decision in all the situations we're in, that sounds really far away, right? It sure does. That is like the top of the staircase. And just cultivating compassion is like the bottom of the staircase. And we need every step. We can't skip ahead. We can't skip ahead. And sometimes our general day-to-day -day experience is really founded in ignorance. It's founded in our distorted perception of the world around us. You know, I like to say, sometimes we see the world like we're looking through those old-timey 3D, 3D glasses with the blue and the red. And if you're a young person, you might not know what I'm talking about, but if you put those on and you're not looking at a 3D movie, you just see reality colored incorrectly through distortion. And that's not a clear picture. And because we don't have a clear picture of the world around us, we're not always making the best decisions, right? So that's sort of what this is about. At some level, we're cultivating relative bodhicitta to help us get to a place where we'll be able to see things clearly. Because that's what this is really all about. Well, it's not what it's all about, but a big aspect of this is just clarity. It's just clarity because we don't know how to make the best choices when we don't see the world clearly. We simply don't know how to do it. And we want to learn how to make the best choices. And also, because we don't see things clearly, we sort of cling to things. We cling to things and we obsess about things and we think this or that is going to last forever. And we think, you know, if I just get this or that sorted out, then, then I can be happy. Then I can be happy. As though we just need the right things lined up in your li our lives so that we can be happy. So that we can be happy. So, Kentrell Lodrote, he goes on to say, the intention of ultimate, of, excuse me, the intention of authentic meditation is to lead us to progressively deeper insights, beginning with what is relatively true and culminating in the wisdom that realizes what is ultimately true. The mind that realizes the true nature is called supreme wisdom or prajna. 
Only knowing supreme wisdom can eliminate unknowing or ignorance. It's pretty heavy. And that's really what we're talking about here. That's really what we're talking about here. A lot of teachings, a lot of sacred texts don't start out this way. This is an introductory teaching in the seven points of mind training by Atisha. It is very early on. It's like throwing it up, throwing you into the deep end so that you learn how to swim. And I sort of think maybe it's meant to be a little bit gatekeeping, a little bit like if this scares you away, maybe this isn't for you. I don't know. I don't know if it's meant to be gatekeeping or not. Maybe it's meant to get us excited, like freedom from suffering is there at the end. We just have to get ready for it. Freedom from suffering is there at the end. And he tries to explain what it looks like, but of course we are all, we have enough obscurations and afflictions and delusions that it just sounds incredible to us. Seeing things the way they really are, the nature of appearances and the mind, right? I'm too busy dwelling in ignorance, dwelling in what's right in front of me to really think about these higher things. But that's sort of what this is preparing us for. What this is preparing us for is seeing reality as it really is. So I'm going to go over uh, number one, the the beginning of the beginning of the Lojong slogans. The Lojong slogans are the mind training slogans, and these are a group of teachings that are sort of like it's sort of like a bumper sticker. I want you to have this little quote and to know what it means and to be able to bring it to mind when you need it. Okay? So there are many of these and I'm going to talk about the first one now of this Ultimate Bodhicitta collection. And this one that I'm talking about is just this. Consider all phenomena to be like a dream. Consider all phenomena to be like a dream. In when we're thinking in terms of relative reality, we think of, uh, we assume, we sort of assume that things in the world exist as we perceive them. And we don't question this very much. So Kentro Lodrote about this, he says, as long as we don't question reality, as long as we persist in not investigating and examining everything, as long as we assume that phenomena are what we believe them to be, for that long, we will suffer. From an ultimate perspective, all the things we perceive are empty of inherently existing. Nothing is as real as solid or as complete as we think it is. And uh, this is something we run into when we are really hoping to get this job or this romantic partner or this house or whatever, and it does not match what we thought. 
does not match what we thought. We think our thoughts about things are real. And the truth is, everything is just a collection of things. Everything we encounter is connected to and dependent upon many, many other things in the world. And we don't typically see things that way. Or rather, we have to be directed to see things that way because it doesn't come very naturally to us. We tend to think think, think things are as they appear and are real and solid. Real and solid. I'm going to read to you. This is going to be sort of an extended quote. Uh, and Kentrell Lodrote uses this to illustrate the difference between seeing things from our normal state of mind and seeing things from an ultimate perspective. And I hope it helps. It helps me sort of think about this a little better. So here it is. He says, and I quote, take for example, the concept of a house. When we see a house, we automatically assume that it exists. There is a house we think. However, if we examine the house more closely, we will see that it is merely a conceptual label projected by the mind based upon a perceived object. We perceive a house. But we can't actually find a single object existing autonomously that can be called a house. When looking carefully at this object called house, we see a conglomeration of many parts and subparts. Which part is actually the house? Is the floor the house? Are the walls the house? Is the ceiling the house? Or perhaps the building materials are the house? Is the wood the house? Or the drywall or nails? Consider every part and ask yourself, which part is the house? Examine closely because if a house exists, we should be able to find it. But instead, we find that each part has its own conceptual label and is not the house. So the house is not the parts that compose it. Still, when you cannot find the house in those parts, continue looking. Consider that for a house to exist, it must either be identical to the parts that compose it or something other than those parts. If it exists as something other than those parts, where is it? You might think that although each individual part is not the house, when all the parts are gathered together in a specific shape to serve a specific function, then there is a house. If you've come to that conclusion, then you agree that there is no single thing called house that exists in and of itself. We can also examine the parts that compose this so-called house. Take a wall, for example. Notice how the mind automatically assumes that a wall exists. Now look closer. Where is the wall? Is the wall the top section or the bottom section? Is, the, is it the outside surface or the components inside? If you look at the different aspects of the wall, the top, bottom, inside, and outside, you have four different labels. The concept of a wall has been replaced with four concepts. Continue to investigate the building materials and try to find the wall. Is the wood the wall? Is the drywall the wall? Is the insulation the wall? Obviously, none of these parts are the wall. So where is this wall? If it exists, we should be able to find it. Is the wall identical to its parts or is it distinct from them? 
If the wall and its parts are identical, then every piece of wood in the frame could be called wall. But if the wall is separate from its parts, then where is it? All we can say is that when certain materials are gathered in a specific way, we call it a wall. But other than that, there is no wall that exists as a specific independent single object. Keep going with this kind of analysis, breaking down each component of any phenomena into parts and subparts. Each label will disappear as it's replaced by new labels. No matter how hard we try, we will find that we never land upon a single object that exists in the way that we have labeled it. We assume that objects such as houses and walls are real and exist the way we conceive them. But as we can see from our analysis of these objects, we are merely labeling the way things appear on the coarsest level. We are not seeing the way things are. So we will never find an actual thing that exists. Rather, we will discover the object is merely appearing dependent on many factors. This is called dependent origination. Because things appear in relation to each other, they have no independent or autonomous existence. The house is only perceived as a house if it has walls, windows, and a front door. The front door is only perceived as a front door if it is placed in a specific location. So the house arises interdependently with the walls, windows, and front door. There is no house that exists by virtue of its own nature. Because if there were, it would have to be completely independent. It could not exist in relation to anything else. So, sorry for reading such a long quote, but... I think that's really instructive to us. The way we can think about a house as being made up of parts, we can apply that to anything because that is how everything works. Uh, Is a book a cover? Is a book the pages in the book? Is it each page? How many pages can you take out and it still be a book, right? Can you take off the binding and it's still a book? What about without the title page, right? And we can think of a car as well. Is a car a car without wheels? Is a car a car without doors and a windshield, right? Is a car still a car if it's broken and it doesn't go anywhere? We can think about anything that way. And the truth is we can think about ourselves that way too. Are you still you if your brain is taken out and put into another body? Are you still you if all your organs are taken away? If your heart is replaced... At what point does that become your heart? At what point is that part of your body? These can be hard things to think about, and thinking about them can really get us confused sometimes. So, uh, with all that being said, I want to talk about the concept of emptiness. And uh, the Sanskrit word for this is shunyata. And... It's sort of hard for us to wrap our heads around sometimes. It doesn't mean nothingness. And some people think emptiness, or some people automatically think emptiness means nothingness. And it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that something used to exist and doesn't exist anymore. And it doesn't really mean that nothing exists. It's more like there's nothing to hold on to. There's nothing to hold on to. Everything is made up of 
components and conditions, and nothing just exists. And this helps us relate to others and the world around us in a more meaningful, useful, and helpful way. Because when we think that some things just permanently exist and exist on their own, then we ascribe value to them that is maybe not deserved. Is maybe not deserved. Well, deserved isn't the right word. But the point is we ascribe value to things that don't, it doesn't serve us very well to do that. It doesn't serve us very well to do that. And that's not to say that we don't have experiences, that we don't run into things, that emptiness does not mean objects no, don't exist. It just means we're clinging to them too much. We're clinging to things too much because we're taking them to be solid and real and permanent, and they're not. Because nothing is. Because everything is just a collection of conditions that comes together for a time and then separates later. And that, that thing we're usually attached to the most is our body. We have a body, and we want our body to stay the same, and we tell ourselves our body's this going to stay the same. And sometimes we do a lot of things to try to make our body stay the same. So I'm going to now... I'm going to tell you another story from the book. And this is sort of about how we... how we see things and we reflect on them in ways that don't serve us. How we see things and we think we see something and we see something else and we get so confused. Uh, Kentrell Lodrote gives us a version of what's called the snake and the rope, which is a traditional Buddhist teaching, the snake and the rope, and I'm going to share it with you now. And I quote, Imagine if someone... Walking at dusk, stumbles upon a thin striped rope in the grass and mistakes it for a snake. Their reaction might be to panic. If, after that initial freakout, they investigate the snake with a flashlight and discover there's only a rope in the grass, their previous concept of a snake, which was based on misperception, immediately vanishes. The suffering and fear the original thought produced disappears along with it. The idea of the snake is replaced with a new thought. It is a rope. And with this new concept comes all the corresponding mental states and experiences. The habit to grasp the things as real is so strong that as soon as the concept of a real snake ceases, another concept about a different real object immediately replaces it. Now, we turn the investigation to our new concept of a rope. We can see that the rope is actually made up of multiple strands of colored string braided together. As soon as we pull it apart, the previous concept of a rope is replaced with the concept of red, white, and blue strings. If the rope existed as a single object in and of itself, we would be able to find it, but instead we find strings. Now look at the strings. Cutting them up, we find that they are actually strands of fiber. 
As soon as we arrive here, our idea of string is replaced with a new concept. If we keep investigating, dissecting all the way to atomic particles and beyond, we still won't ever arrive at a single, independently existing object. If we consider each concept carefully, from the snake down to the tiniest particle, we will see that nothing can be found. The value of taking the time to break down each level of misconception is that it leads us to deeper and deeper understanding of emptiness. This is necessary because each layer of mistaken assumptions about the nature of appearances is an underlying cause for our suffering, which will not end until we clear away this confusion. So, if you think a rope is a snake and you panic, that snake is real to you, right? You can have a physical reaction to something that is not there. That is how powerful our minds are. We can have a legitimately panicked physical reaction to something that is not happening. And additionally, uh, he, he took the moments to remind us that ropes are made up of parts, just like houses. It's all just a collection of things. And we take these things to be solid and real and significant, and a lot of things are not. He goes on to say, and I quote, The search for ultimate truth begins by contemplating the nature of the outer world, the objects surrounding us. These contemplations on false labels and concepts are like a spark that will begin to ignite realizations within us. So, even though uh, it may be really hard for us to grasp these teachings, these heavy, heavy teachings we're receiving now, we're igniting a spark. We're planting a seed, and we will circle back and come back to this later when we have put down a little bit more of our baggage, when we have seen through more of our obscurations we'll be able to come back upon this teaching, and it will mean more to us. I believe that. So, that is it for today, and I hope this talk has been helpful. Thank you for listening, and have a good day.